Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Welcome everyone to another Stem Cells at Lunch podcast. Today we have uh, Professor Elena Escova with us. Elena carried out her PhD uh, on epigenetics and chromatin in Dr. Bill Tansley's lab at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And then for her postdoc, she moved to Dr. Elaine Fuchs' lab at the Rockefeller University, where she focused on the skin stem cell system. Now she's under Mount Sinai, and her lab is part of the Black Family Stem Cell Institute and in the Department of Developmental and Regenerative Medicine. Her interest is uh, the underlying mechanisms that control epithelial stem cells during development and into adulthood, and more specifically, the role of chromatin in these processes. So welcome, Elena, and thank you for presenting your excellent work. I wanted to just kick off the discussion. Maybe you tell us how um, your interest started for the function of epithelial stem cells and how, what did you find uh, very interesting to work on epithelial stem cells? Yeah, thank you for having me today. Uh, this is a very good question. So um, I, I became interested in uh, skin stem cells uh, around uh, 2000, 2005, when um, I, I wanna say like sort of this, their um, understanding of stem cells and the, the potential of stem cells as a therapy, um, sort of start just just coming to the field and IPS technology just emerged that we can convert fibroblast into IPS cells. The thing there was a lot of excitement and interest to use stem cells, either adult stem cells or reprogrammed stem cells for uh, regenerative medicine. And so when I was thinking what system would be the most, I would say immediate implication for therapies, um, Immediately, two systems came to mind, right? Hematopoietic stem cells uh, that has been used to bone marrow transplantation in clinic for already many decades. And then um, epidermal stem cells. And Howard Green from MIT showed in 70s that we can take epidermal stem cells from patients. We can culture them in vitro, produce skin sort of on a dish, and then use it for transplantation to treat victims of burn um, or other um, uh, diseases. So I thought that was a very nice system, stem cell system, to study because we already have direct therapeutic avenue where we could apply our findings into clinic. And of course, we, you know, while the epidermal stem cells are can be used uh, for transplantation, we will, you know, of course, we can make this process more efficient. Uh, we can transplant epidermal cells that can, or epidermal sheets that can produce hair follicles, can produce sweat glands. All of those functions in Howard Green studies are, uh, as he showed, are were not, uh, all those um, capacity of the skin were, were lacking, right? So it was just epidermal barrier that those transplantations produced. However, those uh, skins lacked our hair follicles and lacked sweat glands, etc. So, um, so there's a you know you can move forward by studying more direct implications into clinics. So, and then why epigenetics? Um, we found that well that um, epigenetic factors are interesting candidates to 
first of all, to study from a general role of how they regulate gene expression and how changes in epigenetic factors can stimulate stem cells to self-renew or differentiate. And increasing number of evidence pointing out to the important role of those epigenetic regulators in these processes. There's also a lot of roles are from companies to design either molecules that activate chromatin regulators or inhibit chromatin regulators. So um, I felt that there's, um, you know, whatever we find could then have immediate implication into um, using those molecules for in, in therapy. So I would say that kind of combination of both, some biological questions, the beautiful system, very well characterized uh, system, stem cell system, and immediate implication into clinic, that, that kind of excited me to enter that area. Very interesting. Um, and I think... It's a very fascinating field in general. And also, as you said, more companies started to make more products that you could use and you could uh, study more the epigenetic regulators. So with that, I would like to ask you, do you think that now that we have more advanced technologies and a lot of single cell as well technologies, do you see that the research has been enhanced and how do you see this is going towards? So what I what I would say is that I think that with the more we know, the more there are therapies will become targeted, right? So you can see that the more we understand, for example, from the point of view of epidermis, what changing in epidermal stem cells, let's say during uh, in skin diseases or in aging, then their therapies might not be just sort of very broad. They might go into specific changes that occurs and then go after those alterations. So I, I think that, for example, in epigenetics, there's definitely there are FDA-approved uh, drugs that are already going into clinic or are in clinic to treat uh, human diseases, specifically cancer. So that's very exciting. Whether or not we can use their uh, similar drugs to then, let's say, for, for other uh, human diseases, I think that's also potentially possible. So I think that the more we understand, the more targeted approaches we can design for patients and hopefully avoid unnecessary side effects that occur from just a general treatment uh, with drugs that sort of affect everything. Yeah, and hopefully we're going to reach the personalized medicine that everyone really wanted exactly. years ago. And just because you talked a lot about diseases and you do actually study a lot about melasma and Merkel cell carcinoma and even wound healing, which is the most simple one that people know. What's the most fascinating thing that you have come across when you have studied the diseases? And how do you think the treatment is going to change in maybe 10 years time? So I want to say that there, the fascinating um, thing is the more we understand the biology of normal cells, the more uh, it's becoming interesting to figure out how, let's say, human diseases originate. So for example, in case of uh, Merkel cell carcinoma, something that we've been very fascinated by that disease. So uh, it's, uh, it's a skin disease and it's skin cancer that is a highly aggressive cancer. And, and there, you know, there, there are immunotherapy that is looking very promising, but still there's really no, I would say, efficient treatment that uh, we could give to patients and cure them um, for forever. So 
one thing that we was always were, we thought that you know Merkel cell carcinoma is looks uh, from their name and their expression of markers look very similar to Merkel cells. So we thought it's maybe a disease of Merkel cells. And the more we and others try to transform Merkel cells to make them tumorigenic, um, basically all of those studies fail. So it's very interesting then to, to figure out then how can you treat a cancer when you don't understand where it came from, where it originate, what is cell of origin, and why that is important. Well, maybe then instead of targeting a cell that is not really uh, tumorigenic, maybe you need to figure out what, what, what is a cell that cause that cancer and then design a therapy to actually target that cells. So we've been studying a lot, uh, trying to figure out from just developmental point of view, as well as in normal homeostasis, where the Merkel cells originate and then hypothesizing that maybe transforming one of those cells will result into formation of Merkel cell carcinoma. So I would say that, you know, the surprises come every day and the more you try to understand, the more, the more complicated it is. <laughs> exactly. But I also want to say it's becoming more, even more interesting. And so, um, and I think that's yeah. the what exciting part about science is that you can never get bored. It's almost, you know, every time you think, okay, you kind of know it and then you discover something else that leads to new biology and then potentially better treatments. Or I, I, that's what I think is very exciting about science is that it's uh, uh, it's like a puzzle that just <laughs> keep on growing, that you keep, keep assembling. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I think everyone who chooses that, <laughs> they had to deal with uh, going up from one piece to another and trying to make sense of that. <laughs> Never-ending puzzle, yeah. <laughs> Never-ending puzzle, it's true. Uh, human organism is <laughs> so complicated. <laughs> and do you collaborate with uh, other and, and do you think that, how important do you think is collaboration in our field? I think it's actually very important. Uh, I think that science comes so multidimensional from the point of view of disciplines that we and techniques that we have to do to answer uh, the most interesting questions. And you know, and a lot of times, a single lab just don't have capacity, capabilities, uh, skills to answer all the questions. You know, from a simple an analysis of single cell data, uh, bioinformatic analysis of epigenetic uh, profile to drug design, working with clinicians to get samples. So it's sort of a combination of all of those tasks that, you know, one lab might not necessarily have. So, you know, we collaborate with clinicians who provide uh, human samples as well as expertise in the disease. And I think it's very important to talk to clinicians and get their input on, are we going in the right direction? Are we actually trying to answer the most important question from the clinical perspective or um, we're just like kind of working on our curiosity which so it's I think interaction with clinicians is very important so then I think of course the bioinformatics support um, having access to people who really know how to do it properly and well I think it's it's so important because you might get lost in data or go into a very different direction that so for uh, interaction with uh, chemists that design drugs that, for example, we, we use our, some of the inhibitors in our studies that have not been published yet. So those, you know, those labs just generate them and share with us. Uh, there's no way that we could have done it, right? So I think of, you know, mathematicians who, who will do uh, predictions and modeling of uh, assays and directions that we're going after. So 
I think it's extremely important. And so, uh, you know, either being in a, in a place where all of those expertise are present, like big universities or uh, designing a centers, for example, uh, we have a skin center that will attract their uh, people with different expertise and, and, and provide sort of platform for collaborations and directions. I think it's very important. I think science now is not a one lab work or you know journey. Yeah. It has, has to be with collaboration with others. Especially with all the data that they're generated and it's so much that everyone can work on them and it's important. And uh, you mentioned about uh, how important it is that you have the input from the clinicians. Um, do you think that there is room to improve the translation of research? I think, of course, I think that we need to, we need to attract more clinicians into our meetings into our, you know, work in progress meetings where we just share our preliminary studies or, you know, just the beginning of the, the beginning of the project. I think we need to interact with them more because I think that they, their input from the disease perspective, from patients that they see is very critical. And so how to do it, a lot of times it's not easy. Uh, We're all busy seeing patients, but I think that if there's um, financial, let's say, support from universities or institutes to allocate some support in the effort, clinicians' effort to enter a lab and to attend for, let's say, for a few hours, lab meetings or work in progress meeting, I think that would be so so uh, important. So, um, yeah, I think without that, it, it, it's just doing sort of a very important basic research, uh, but for translational aspect, it's, it, it is very important. I think I'm going to have a smooth ending question for you and ask you what we all as PhDs are thinking. And that would be, what advice would you give to someone who wants to have a similar career to yours? So what would advice? I would say find research direction that really interests you. I think that's the most important. If you want to stay in science, you need to find a, you need to find questions or or research topic that interests you the most, and that is very critical. Also, I would say that don't be afraid. I think a lot of times people pray to continue on a scientific career. Um, I think it's I almost just think that's the most uh, interesting and rewarding career. It's it's uh, you learn something new every single day from just looking at the data, discovering something new uh, through interacting with people in the lab, reading papers, uh, going to meetings, interacting with other scientists. I think it's extremely interesting. It's not easy, but on the other hand, I think it's there. <laughs> the reward is, is just so enormous. So I would just say that if science is what attracts you, it will interest you, find the topic, the research direction that you like, and just don't worry about grants, funding, you know, getting a job at the end. It, it will work out, I promise. <laughs> it will all work out. Just, just keep on going. Well, thank you very much for this positive message in the end. I think we all need that, especially after a pandemic. Um, So thank you so much for joining us and thank you for giving us a very nice seminar and keep on the excellent research that you do and we can read more of your papers. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.